Every week, there seem to be new allegations of abuse in the Christian community, from Ravi Zacharias to Chris Rice to Bill Hybels and James McDonald. Why are the powerful preying on the vulnerable, and what can we do to stop it? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and joining me today is Dr. Diane Langberg, someone who's no stranger to many of you. Dr. Langberg has been a guest on this podcast before, and as a leading psychologist and expert on abuse, her insights are profound. Well, Dr. Langberg has just released a new book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, and this is a must-read for Christians. If we want to stop abuse in the church, it's critical that we understand the forms that power takes how it is abused, and how to respond to abuses of power. So I'm very much looking forward to exploring this extremely important and relevant topic with Dr. Langberg today. But before I do, I'd like to thank the sponsors of The Roy's Report, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson University is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and excellent college experience. Judson has resumed in-person classes for traditional, transfer, and adult students, and you can choose from more than 60 majors and learn in a Christian community known for its spiritual values, leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson is located on a beautiful 90-acre campus just 36 miles northwest of Chicago. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu slash visit. Also, if you're in the market for a car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. And I'm proud to partner with them for this podcast. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Dr. Diane Langberg, an internationally recognized psychologist and counselor with 47 years of experience. She's also the co-founder of the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, and she sits on the board of GRACE, an organization committed to empowering Christian communities to recognize, prevent, and respond to abuse. So Dr. Langberg, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me again. You're welcome, Julie. It's a privilege to be here. Well, Diane, so excited to have you on the program. And before we get started, I just want to mention, too, that your book, Redeeming Power, is our premium this month for our giving partners. So anyone who becomes a monthly donor giving $25 a month or more will get this book. To do that, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash donate. That's julieroys, dot com slash donate. Well, Dr. Langberg, I so appreciate your book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. This is such a timely book and a relevant book with all the abuse uh, going on in the church today and just a, a grievous thing that power is so misused. And I think because of that, we often think of power as something that might be inherently bad, but you talk about it as something that's inherently good. In fact, you write that it derives from Christ. Would you explain that? Well, the power that humans have, I think, is first of all part of the image of God that we bear. Mm. We bear the image of the God of all power. And in that image giving, he gave us power. He gave us choice. 
Um, he said to Adam and Eve, I want you to go out and rule and subdue my world, not each other, mm-hmm. but his world, so that it flourishes and is blessed. So we were created to have power, but it was, of course, to be used in service of God and honoring him. And then Jesus, when he was leaving the earth, he said to his disciples, all power, not some, all power is given to me in heaven and on earth. And so that means that the power that we have is not actually ours. It's a piece of his that he has given to us. Mm. And he's given it to us to use in a way that looks like him, that honors him, and that blesses his world. Mm. And that's such a beautiful picture and image. And yet so often, that's not what we see. We don't see power used to bless others. We see power frequently used to exploit and abuse the vulnerable. Yes. Why is that, that this tool that God's given us is so often perverted? Well, partly because humans pervert everything that's good about God. (laughs) So true. (laughs) We're sort of equal opportunity perverters is what we are. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, since the fall, that's what we do. Yeah. You know, we, we were to reflect his image and everything that we were and did, that is no longer the case. And so now, rather than using our power to honor him and to look like him, we use our power to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that can be as basic as a two or three-year-old taking a wooden block and hitting another two or three-year-old on the head because they want what they have, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the way through to heads of nations uh, like Adolf Hitler or somebody like that. And in between more ordinary people, institutions and churches and things like that, use the power that has been God-given to feed themselves Mm. rather than to bless. Yeah. And so often we see shepherds who are supposed to feed the sheep, actually preying on the sheep, actually feeding on the sheep. And it's just, it's so grievous. You talk about, too, the the role of deception Mm -hmm. about people, how we distort everything. And, you know, you think back to the fall, Mm -hmm. that all began with a deception, right? That if if you eat this, you know, you will be wise, you will be like God. And and Eve was deceived and then Adam. Um, But with using our power and using it in perverted ways, deception is at the root. And I thought that that was really interesting. Can you explain how deception... Uh, works with power and, you know, exploitation? It's deception in two ways. It's first deception of the self. You have to find ways to talk to yourself about how it's okay to, to use power in a way that's actually harmful. And then deception of others so that you can get away with what you're doing uh, or call it good, which is mm. often, you know, what happens. Again, you just think back in more concrete ways or with a child, uh, let's say a boy who's being bullied throughout school So people are abusing power in the way that they treat him. And perhaps at some point he says, I'm never going to let anybody do this to me again. Mm. I will be in charge no matter what happens because I will be safe from this. And so he has set himself unknowingly on a trajectory of abusing power himself. Mm. And it's because when he was vulnerable, others abused power. And, you know, that bears out in statistics and things. So if you look at the statistics for homes where there's been domestic violence, the percentage of the next generation having domestic violence, whether it's somebody marrying a violent person or somebody being a violent person, the percentages are quite high. 
And so when power has been abused in our lives, we want to protect ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But Mm -hmm. we often do that in ways that are also abusive. Mm. And we tell ourselves it's a good thing. Mm. I need to do this because bullying is bad and it hurts me and I'm not going to let that happen anymore. And so I can knock all your teeth out if I have to in order to protect me. And I can say it was a good thing to do because what you're doing is bad. And abuse is something that as a church we know is bad, we know is evil, and yet we see it coming into the church. And I think part of that you put your finger on in this book when you say that deception, that it often becomes systemic. How can deception become systemic and how does that work, particularly in say, a church or a Christian institution? We are God's people. This work that we are doing is God's work. We must protect God's work at all costs. (laughs) Your story of abuse by the person in charge of this work is going to destroy God's work. So you are now an enemy of God. And so we have to deal with you so we can protect God's work. Mm. And we hear that so often. Yes. So, so often. And if you're going to blow the whistle on that, I know this isn't original to me, but in these dysfunctional systems, there is no problem. But if you speak up about a problem, you become the problem. Yes, you are the problem and you have to be dealt with. Yeah. It's been interesting for me reading your book in conjunction with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's book called A Church Called Tove, and Tove is the Mm. word for good. It's in my pile, (laughs) my book pile. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And it dovetails so perfectly with your book because it talks about, you know, a good culture, creating a good culture in churches that resist abuse, promote healing. And they talk about how every church has a culture. Mm. But we often don't think about that. We're, we're formed by this culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yet it's often invisible to us because we just live in it. We swim in it. And you write about culture too, about how it can seduce us to behave in ways that can break the heart of God, obviously, if the culture is bad. Would you talk about how that happens, how we you know, are influenced by these cultures that are often toxic that we don't even realize, and then we end up doing things that we shouldn't be doing? Part of it is just the, the general idea, I think, that culture is sort of like the air we breathe. Mm. We don't even really see or assess our own culture. We do that within our nuclear families. We do that in our neighborhoods or part of the nation. We do that nationally. We do it all kinds of ways. And so that's just the way it's supposed to be. It's the way that it is. I'm a military kid. So, you know, Mm. we moved a lot. And so I was always put in, though I was in the military culture, I was put in new cultures over and over again. And so it gave me eyes to see some things that I probably would have missed if I'd lived in the same house in the same place my entire growing up. So I I think part of it is that we don't purposefully evaluate. There's an old story about a a woman who's cooking a roast and every time she cooks it, she cuts off a piece of it. And her husband said, why do you do that? And she said, I don't know. I do it because my mother did it. So she calls her mother and she says to her mother, why did you you always cut off a piece off the rope? She says, because my pot was too small. Right. (laughs) That's culture. Right. So it it goes down to the next generation. It's what you do, but nobody knows why. And Mm. if you go back to the reason why, it's perfectly ridiculous for you to do it. Mm. But then if you look... Look at Christian institutions, uh, denominations, uh, whatever, and go back not very far. 
those institutions have used God's word to protect their culture, which is a cult, was a culture that had slaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, doing some reading about that and things like that, I think is very eye-opening because most of us don't know those things and we don't realize the church has done those things, nor do we think about how we might still be doing it in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God's word has been used in cultures to uh, support slavery, to support domestic violence, and to support the cover-up of rape and sexual abuse. One of the churches that obviously I've spent a lot of time investigating over the past couple of years has been Harvest Bible Chapel. And it's interesting as we're talking about this, one of the things I noticed about James McDonald when I used to hear him on the radio when I worked for Moody Radio is that he mocked people. And this is before I knew anything about what was going on, the corruption and and bullying and everything within Harvest Bible Chapel. But I just remember being turned off to that. I'm like, he often would, would talk about some sort of person who held a belief that he thought was wrong. And then he'd, he'd sort of pretend to be that person in a mocking voice or a derisive voice. And I just thought, well, that's just not how Christians should behave. I, I just didn't right. like it. And interestingly, now that I've reported on Harvest, people have told me, yeah, James McDonald used to say sarcasm was his love language. And sarcasm was just rampant. In the church, yes. and that's just how they treated people. And and just recently, uh, you know, he's been doing some preaching, and somebody sent me a clip of that. And within a sermon, how he mocks people—I I forget how many times it was, it was literally dozens in one sermon. But I thought, my goodness, when that's up front, and then what is being portrayed to the people, and this is a culture where we say sarcasm is a love language. All of a sudden, this becomes natural. And we we become, you know, almost immune to it. And and I'm just thinking people listening right now, how can we evaluate the culture of our church and say, is this biblical? And how can we start opening our eyes to things that maybe we've been completely blind to? Well, part of that is that we as God's people have to really not only know his written word well, but his word made flesh. Hmm. I mean, our Lord was never sarcastic Mm-mm. and he dealt with vicious enemies. He always spoke in a way that was founded in love, even when he was cracking whips and turning over tables, because at bottom, what that was, was an invitation into the light because he loved them. So a, a leader like that, or people who surround a leader like that, well, that's just his way. That's just what he does. You know, you need to get used to it. Yeah, right. It, it's utterly ungodly. Hmm. It's something our Lord never did and never sanctions. And we are tolerating that poison. And that poison seeps into the culture and seeps into individual lives. And I could pretty much bet you that there are people living in homes under those kinds of words Mm. in the pulpit who use those kind of words at home with wives and children and whatever, or husbands and children, because it's been sanctioned. It's just a way. Yes. And so then you now are taking utter ungodliness, excusing it, saying it's okay, and reproducing it in other people who then reproduce it in other generations. Mm, Just such a vicious cycle. You know, one of the stories I reported on the past month concerns Ravi Zacharias, this champion apologist that Christians have revered for decades. And yet we're now we're hearing what appears to be a preponderance of evidence that this man was a serial sexual predator. But I know for a lot of Christians, they just can't accept it. I mean, it's just this cognitive dissonance because there's this man of such knowledge and intellect who so winsomely mm. argued for the truth. And to believe that this man could actually be a wolf 
in sheep's clothing is just really, really, really hard. But you write, and I thought this was really interesting, that we inherently tend to trust people like Ravi. Why is it that someone that, again, is this person of knowledge and intellect, we just inherently think that person is someone we can trust? I think at bottom, it's because we have elevated gifting over character. Mm -hmm. We assume that gifts verbal ability, whatever intellectual ability, all those kinds of things, particularly when those abilities are used to do things that are scriptural or sound like scripture or whatever, or say they're for the church, all of those things. We trust that character is good because gifting is good. Mm. And it's a complete lie. I mean, you just go back to the basic Galatians thing about the fruit of the Spirit. There is not one gift listed in that. Mm. So you can be brilliant and verbal and theologically astute and all kinds of things. There's been people like that down through the centuries and look nothing like Jesus Christ Mm. in some way. That is, in terms of what you were talking before, in terms of ungodliness with sarcasm and things like that, treating people in the image of God like that, or whether it's sexual stuff that's been hidden for years, or whether it's stealing money for years from a Christian institution. I mean, there's a million ways you can do it. But the bottom line is you have a very gifted person using those gifts to speak things that sound like God, whose character looks nothing like Christ when it's exposed. Mm -hmm. And so often when we have abuse, it's not just from a person of intellect and knowledge, it's from a man of Mm. intellect and knowledge. And that man is often, uh, in some cases, preying on his entire church, but often very specifically preying on women. And I don't Mm. mean to open a can of worms, but I guess I'm going to. You just did. (laughs) Yes, I did. But many have have asked, you know, how different Christian understandings of the role of men and women have perhaps contributed to abuse. What's your view on that? Well, uh, having opened the can of worms, I'll I'll stick my neck out and say, (laughs) yes, I think that's true. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. what we have set up in the Christian world, and again, you go back to Genesis, Adam and Eve, go, the two of you, and rule and subdue my earth. Then there's the fall, and God says, this man's going to rule over you. Well, that's part of the fall. It wasn't God's original command. Exactly. And we have made that a good thing. And so we seem to have done this dichotomy thing where men are supposed to be very strong and have the authority and the wisdom and the final say and all those kinds of things, and women are supposed to be supportive and kind and everything else. The fact of the matter is we're all supposed to be both. Mm -hmm. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to be wise, and I need to exercise authority according to him that looks like him, and I need to have strength. It doesn't matter what my gender is, but if I'm a follower of him, I need humility and gentleness, and I need to know how to support and care for And I also need to know how to follow. Mm. We've messed all that up, (laughs) along with a few other things. (laughs) It's interesting to me, though, when when we talk about this, we often associate uh, what is, you know, say, complementarian theology, which is, you know, that there are traditional, there are are distinct roles for men and women. When we associate that often with being an oppressive and domineering and, you know, sometimes abusive, Mm. that it can create that kind of culture in the church. And then we assume that egalitarian, where there's not necessarily distinct roles for for men and women, they can might maybe believe to be interchangeable, that that would be a more welcoming environment. And, And yet what we found is that there is abuse 
in both, say, an egalitarian yes. church like Bill Hybels had at Willow Creek um, and the complementarian churches, you know, and speak of Paige Patterson, who at the Southern Baptist Convention was very misogynistic, yes. I would say. Yes. But it's interesting to me to note that it can be in both. I've said sometimes that complementarianism and egalitarianism are just two sides of the same misogynistic coin. Um, misogyny is an issue in the church. And I think, and you even bring up this whole, uh, and I won't get completely into this, but I will touch on it, this whole eternal subordination of the son and looking at Mm. the fact that marriage is supposed to be a Trinitarian symbol, you know, of two becoming one flesh. And that's supposed to speak of, you know, the father, son, and the Holy Spirit and how they relate. It is interesting to me that we would actually, I mean, this is just perverse to me, that we would look at the Trinity and make it all about hierarchy. (laughs) When I look at the Trinity, it, are there different roles in the Trinity? Yes. Does the Son submit to the Father? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit glorify the Son and the Father? Yes. What do you see is this mutuality and love. That's what I see when I look at the Trinity. Yes. Yes, it is the unity. There's a, a chapter on gender, as you know, in the book. Yeah. And part of what I talk about is the fact that we have created these two labels mm-hmm. that are very divisive in the Christian world. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the other side, you're wrong and I'm not. We've taken two words and created them, dividing the church, telling everybody who they should be, as if we had the wisdom to do that. And these words are, they're nowhere in the scripture. That's true. It doesn't talk like that. It says there's neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Although I would say there are distinctions of male and female. Of course there are. But the point is that in terms of dignity and worth and and status and strength and Mm -hmm. all of those things, we're all called to be Christ-like. Amen. And it's not like there's parts of who Christ is that I'm not supposed to be because I'm female. (laughs) Exactly. And we all have access, equal access to the Father through the Son. Absolutely. That's the only way. Yeah. Amen. Well, you write that there are two words that should never go together, spiritual and abuse. And yet spiritual abuse is a thing. Um, I have become so acutely aware of that in the past few years. And spiritual abuse is absolutely rampant in our churches. How is it that our churches, the, the very places that are supposed to be the haven for the vulnerable, and we know that our Father's heart is inclined to the vulnerable, right? I mean, you just, you cannot read scripture and not see that his heart breaks for the vulnerable and for those who are oppressed by the powerful. So how can, how has it happened that our churches have become places where there is abuse and when, and where scripture is used as a tool of abuse? Well, I would first say that any form of abuse in any setting, whether it's verbal or emotional or financial or physical or whatever, also brings spiritual abuse. Mm. You can't sexually abuse a child or rape another person or batter them or anything else and not damage their soul. Yeah, This is not possible. So all of those things include spiritual abuse. And and part of what, you know, I have seen for decades is how it makes understanding God the Father and his love for his children close to impossible. Mm. I mean, it's just diabolical. So then you put put it in a an institution that calls itself by God's name that does not acknowledge that that impact of any kind of abuse, whether it occurred in the church or institution or not, number one. 
Two, when it is exposed, it is denied or hidden, and it is often covered up with the use of spiritual language. Again, you know, we're hearing God's name. We're going to ruin God's name in this community that we're trying to reach. Do you want these people to go to hell because you did this? Because you're talking about this? You don't want that. I mean, that's that's horrible spiritual abuse. It's using our God and his words in a way that protects evil and darkness and sin. You also talk about how in the church we've been seduced by power. Do you explain that? Well, we were seduced in Eden. Mm. And again, we were seduced in Eden. We were given choice by God. That's part of what it means to have power. He gave it to us. He wants us to love him by choice. Mm. Okay. So we use that power and were seduced by it in another form to deceive ourselves that in reaching for that power, we were actually pleasing God. Mm. It's a whole deception thing. Mm-hmm is always part of the equation. And so we are lured into having power, partly, I think, because we were made to have power. Hmm. Again, back to your beginning question, it's not like power is all bad. It's not. It's good. And you you look at power seen in kindness. You look at power seen in, in gentleness. You look at power seen in the cross, which looks nothing like the way we think power ought to look. But nonetheless, that's the greatest power that ever was yeah. or is. So I think part of the seduction is because we're meant to have it. Mm. But part of that seduction, of course, is the deception that you will have it. And that's a good thing. And God wants you to have it. And you'll be more like him when you have it this way. Mm. And so then we, to say unwisely is barely to cover it, but we unwisely choose power cloaked in God language that looks nothing like him. Mm. It's very easy to happen. And to use it to serve ourselves instead of to bless others, which was the original purpose for it. Yes. Um, You you know, speaking of power, one of the things that um, just really struck me from your book is talking about how we all have power, because I think some of us feel like we have no power. We feel very powerless, especially compared to, you know, huge institutions or very powerful people and celebrities. or pastors in our church, which often, you know, even in a small church can feel almost godlike in their their sure. power and their control, you know, over people. If it's especially if they're not using it appropriately. But you you mentioned it here, and it cracked me up because um, <laughs> we have a grandchild who is not quite yet a year a year old, and we went over to their house uh, last weekend and spent some time with my my son and his wife and. Um, and and you mentioned how an infant who can't even mm. speak, can't do anything hardly for him or herself, has incredible power. Yes. Because in the middle of the night, that infant can cry <laughs> and rouse two human beings to come running to <laughs> him or her and wait on their every need, right? I mean, so even yes. an infant has power. Can you talk just a little bit about, you know, the different forms of power Um, that maybe we're oblivious to. Well, verbal power is certainly one of them. And a parent has tremendous verbal power. The parent names the world for the child. Mm -hmm. Lots of times the world gets misnamed or, you know, whatever. So, and then obviously leaders have verbal power. You know, pastors have it. Professors have it. Hitler had it. Mm-hmm. There is emotional power where people know how to speak in a way that touches emotions. 
that draws people in, that gets them to move toward or do things that they otherwise would not. There's the power of knowledge. I mean, you know, if I needed somebody to explain this virus to me, you know, I, I would go to somebody who knows the science of it. They have knowledge that I don't have. So knowledge and intellect, which again, parents, teachers, professors, pastors, you know, they've studied, they know things. I know things my clients don't know. I can name things for them. I have verbal power and I have knowledge and can say, well, this is trauma. This is what it does. And they, they had no idea. Hmm. Uh, there's power of position. You know, you have a lump on your back and you go to the physician, you're hoping he has power of knowledge, <laughs> hmm. but his position is, he's the one with power in the room. He can name the lump on your back is nothing, or he can name it as cancer. You know, there's all kinds of things that he can do from that position. The position of teaching a class, the position of preaching, all of those things are, are powerful positions. And then, of course, you have people literally with with the power position, um, you know, a guard in a prison. <laughs> mm. You know, that's a position of power that can be used or misused toward others. There's economic power. There's physical power, which is what we usually think of when we think of power. And it's mm. only one of the kinds, you know, but if you weigh 240 pounds and I'm five feet tall and weigh 92 pounds, you have the power. You know, you could pick me up and twirl me around, do whatever you want. I can't stop you. Um, and then, of course, there's power from a spiritual perspective that people can have. I'm probably forgetting some, but the fact is there are many, many kinds. The other thing I talk about, which I think is extremely important for people to know, is that there is power in the withholding of power. Mm. And that can be good or bad, just like all the other kinds. So one of the things that strikes me, you know, you talk about the church and the wolves and the sheep and they, eat, you know, they're feeding off the sheep and all of that. If you go to Ezekiel 34, where God's talking to the shepherds who are basically destroying the feeding off of the sheep. But in that chapter, he says this, you didn't strengthen the sick. You didn't heal the diseased. Mm. You didn't bind up the broken. Yes. And you didn't bring back the scattered. You used your power to fail them, to withdraw from them, mm. to not actively take care of them. Mm. And so withholding power can be tremendously powerful. Mm. You know, if you saw a blind person ready to walk across the railroad track and or a blind and deaf person and their train was coming, if you did nothing, your withholding of power could end their life. Mm. And so that's important for the church to understand because when something about abuse is brought up and the church collectively withholds its power, mm. requiring truth, requiring it being investigated, whatever they need to do. But the point is that absence of power is very powerful. Mm and can do terrible destruction. Yeah. Boy, that withholding of power. I mean, obviously, we're talking about an abuse context. I've noticed that churches, and I don't know if this is a one-to-one -one correlation. It probably isn't. I'm sure there's there's examples where it doesn't hold true. But but the churches, where there have been abused, a lot of these mega churches, look at their missions budget. So often it's paltry because mm -hmm. they were spending on themselves, on building mm -hmm. that kingdom. And, mm -hmm. and I think often that can be an indicator when you th speak of withholding power. I mean, here they had this power to bless and to, mm -hmm. to, you know, to bring so much relief around the world. And they were spending it on building their platforms. And uh, I think that's very, very telling. And when you speak of power, too, I, one thing I want to speak to is the power of the victim, because I think the victim mm. feels so powerless. And especially when mm -hmm. and I think of verbal because I, that's my currency. Right. I can write mm -hmm. it or I can speak it. That's my currency that I've used, the power God's given me to expose evil, 
and to confront it and to to bring some sort of reform in the church. I will never forget this one situation. It was actually when I was first blowing the whistle on stuff at Moody Bible Institute. And I remember this professor coming to me and saying, Julie, please speak for us because we feel like we have no voice. And I remember the time thinking, okay, yeah, God's uniquely positioned me where I I know how to report this and I have a platform Mm -hmm. for reporting it. So yes, that's true. And at the same time, it's occurred to me later that the 30 to 40 professors who I know had written letters complaining about the the very you know top down um, authoritarian kind of uh, administration that was was there at the time management. If they had simply banded together the thirty to forty of them mm-hmm. and not been afraid mm-hmm. of the consequences to themselves and had mm-hmm. banded together all thirty to forty of them and spoken publicly about what was going on, I wouldn't have had to do anything. No. And yet so often what I see, and, and this is what I've noticed, is there being a crisis of courage in the church and people not using their power, their voice. And it's sad. I'll say on one hand, I can understand it because sometimes people have spoken and they've been absolutely crushed. Yes. Yes. And yet at the same time, we are seeing now with the Me Too movement, we are seeing now mm-hmm. with all, I mean, I couldn't believe when Christianity Today actually did an investigative piece on Ravi Zacharias. Mm-hmm. I don't think five years ago that ever would have happened. Mm-hmm. But now things are changing, and I feel like the Christian media is starting to speak. But I think victims are starting to speak and using the power that they have. How can, I mean, do we need to recover some of the power that we have as lay people, as victims, as um, allies to victims? In the church? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, having a voice is part of the image of God, just like power is. Mm-hmm. God speaks, he, he is the word, and yeah. we are in his image. And so what we do with our voices, whether we lie or twist things or deceive, or whether we use our voices for truth and with humility and out of love, matters tremendously. And I think in many ways, the church, it's certainly not here just in this country, and it's certainly not just in this century or anything like that, but the the church has become an institution rather than a body. Mm -hmm. And it's a system that we protect and we equate it with the body, but it's not. And so when things happen, like you're describing with Moody or whatever, part of what that does is to protect the institution I choose to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But the body that doesn't follow its head is a sick body. And he always called things by their right name. He always brought the light to the situation. He turned on the light and the rats ran. He did it out of love, but he always did it. And we end up having bought the idea that this place or this organization or this denomination or this school or whatever is God's body. It's not. Mm. There's not going to be institutions in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) so we protect our place in an institution rather than follow our head. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't speak up in those situations because they really don't understand the power that they have because nobody's ever taught them. Mm -hmm. And I think also now victims are speaking up, which I'm extremely grateful for. It's highly risky for them. And the courage it takes is pretty much immeasurable as far as I'm concerned. But they also, in terms of some of them, have each other now. Mm -hmm. 
There's a big community. You know, if you if you were being abused in a little tiny church in Iowa and then somebody else is being abused over in London or something like that, they had no way to be in contact with each other. There was no other. So there are ways now that has have, have strengthened their voice, which I'm exceedingly grateful for because its silence has changed the music. Mm. They're meant to sing. Mm-hmm. And they're meant to sing the truth. Well, and it's true. With the internet, I think it is empowered victims. They have a voice they didn't before. They have a way of connecting that they didn't before. And and I know for me, I've been amazed at these abuse survivor communities and mm-hmm. how the the level of support and camaraderie is really amazing. And I know I've appreciated that um, so much. And so I guess we are talking about the solution here and some of the ways to fight it. But you specifically talk about an antidote to abuse and exploitation in the church. What What is the antidote? <laughs> well, ultimately, the antidote is a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, his character, his love, his humility, those are the antidotes. Those are the ways we've lost our way. We aren't walking in humility. We aren't loving. We aren't doing those. We're not speaking truth, which is the proper authority to have. You know, the authority is twisted up when it's just do this, do that, whatever. Authority is about truth. It's delivered with humility and based in love. And can it be surgical and hurt like crazy? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it still has those qualities. But ultimately, you see, the antidote is not how to do it, Mm -hmm. even though there are ways. The antidote is Jesus Christ. He is our head. And he has called us. He was the word made flesh. You want to know what God looks like? You walk around with that man. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the word made flesh, both individually and collectively. That's the only antidote I know to this mess. And again, this mess has been going on for centuries. I mean, it's not like, you know, the huge churches in Europe and all that kind of stuff haven't had hideous abuse histories. You know, we are not special here in the U.S. (laughs) in terms of doing damage. But it's him. It's not my denomination. It's not my institution. It's not my gifting. It's my likeness to him. Mm-hmm. And he empowers us. He does. Greater is he that is in you than he yes. that is in the world. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit. Post-Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes. And and I think so often we forget. Yes. I say this a lot, but I mean, I, I believe it to the core of my being that I've, if we are fighting on the side of truth, God is truth. And he fights for us and he empowers us. He doesn't just speak truth. He is truth. Amen. Same thing with love. He doesn't Mm. just talk about love. He is love. Recently, a tragic story uh, that came out about Chris Rice, who's a singer, songwriter. I I love some of his songs. Like Mm -hmm. Deep Enough to Dream is one of my favorite songs because I love heaven songs. Um, And I love to keep my focus on heaven because sometimes what's happening on earth is something I I don't want to contemplate. I really would rather put my focus on on heaven. And um, yeah, I was just really just so sad to see these allegations come out that, uh, or an allegation that he had Mm. sexually abused someone in a youth ministry at a church. But as grieved as I was by that, I was also unbelievably heartened by the way that the church handled it, immediately reported it to police or informed police. I guess the alleged victim is an adult. So it's mm-hmm. it's up to that person whether mm-hmm. whether he wants to press charges or not. But then the elders met right away. And they hired Grace, which is the organization you're on the board of, and one mm-hmm. of 
a very, very small group that I would trust to do an independent investigation to find out the, the truth of a situation like this. But then he made a statement. And one of the things I loved about the public statement that this church made, well, it's actually the pastor made it, you know, he was speaking for the church. Um, but he said that this allegation is credible because of the the character of the person that brought it forward, and there was corroborating evidence. And so you see a victim affirmed and believed mm-hmm. publicly. And then this almost brought tears to my eyes. He he writes to potential survivors of mm-hmm. abuse, because often we know if there's one abuse, there's there's usually many more. And you have a lot of silenced victims. And we don't know in this case if that's true. And we Again, these are allegations. They have not been proven or you know shown to be true or false yet. But he writes, the pastor writes, my deepest apology is reserved for you. Again, the potential uh, survivors of abuse. I have wept at the thought of a high school student being exposed to this alleged abuse because of their involvement at the church I love and pastor. Mm-hmm. I am so sorry. I want you to know that all of this transparency, urgency, and energy is for you, and I pray that it will bring some measure of healing to your story. We also understand that this process might be painful for survivors of sexual abuse unrelated to these allegations. Mm-hmm. So I want to say... To any and all victims of any and all sexual abuse, we grieve with you and pray that you will not hold the sins of those who claim to follow Jesus Christ against Jesus. That makes me weep. (laughs) I think it made, I I know it made a lot of people weep because I saw it on social media, people saying that. Well, the gift of that to victims of any kind of abuse anywhere is immeasurable. Mm-hmm. because probably 90-plus percent of them have never heard a Christian leader speak like that. Yeah. So, which is, that alone is a terrible thing. <laughs> and I, I would also say, which I, it sounds like they understand this as a church, but probably need to be reminded of it as they go through this, that they are they are suffering. Yes. I mean, they, they, you know, they already did an investigation for something else. That's true. This is the second one, and maybe yes. why they're so... Educated so, on how yes, to do I'm it. Yes, I'm sure that's true. However, they probably didn't think when they did that that they were going to do it again. <laughs> yeah. And so that's got to be a, a punch in the gut mm. and full of grief and suffering mm. for them as a church. They did not choose to take care of themselves in the midst of that. Yeah. They chose to pursue the truth in proper ways, and they chose to care for the least of these, whether they are victims in that church or any place else ever. And I would hope that they would have glimmers of the fact as a church that they are leading the way for the rest of us. Hmm. And that is the path of our Lord, you see, because he is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Hmm. And we're to follow him. And that is not a road we want to walk on. Thank you very much. This church is walking that road. They're following him. But they're also calling the rest of us to follow them as they follow him. Yeah. And something I remember you saying in a previous podcast was that we need to change our vision of what a pastor is mm-hmm. instead of this charismatic leader that, you know, draws us in, into, you know, his vision of the future, which is so much of what it is today. But biblically, a pastor is someone who sacrifices himself for his sheep. And like you said, in this situation, this pastor isn't thinking about protecting himself or protecting his church. 
he's sacrificing for the sake of his sheep and even issued an apology to the larger community saying, (laughs) you expect churches to be safe places. We're so sorry we failed you. We, yes. Yeah. And we're going to do everything we can. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, we do follow the good and great shepherd, but that path goes to a cross. Yes. Not financial success, not fame. Mm. Well, last question for you, um, and I thank you for giving us as much time as you have. Uh, but obviously, you you stayed in the church despite yes. its many failings. Why is it that you still believe in the church despite everything that you've seen? And what advice do you have for hurting victims today, who are probably thinking, "I don't know if I want to give the church a second shot." I would first say to the victims that I get that. And I would never push a victim to be involved in a church, particularly one who's been a victim of something like clergy sexual abuse or whatever. Because, first of all, I want them to really be strong in understanding that that has nothing to do with who God is and that you don't have to show up in a building for him to be pleased. Mm. You know, he loves you. (laughs) And he's not like whoever they were or he or she was or whatever. So I'm very, very careful with that. But I love the church, Julie, not the institution, Mm. the body of Christ. And I've spent almost 50 years serving the body of Christ. I mean, I've not only worked with victims of all kinds of horrific things, including around the world genocide and all kinds of things, but I've also worked with pastors for years. Mm. And some of them are broken and some of them are just very fine and struggling because it's a very, very hard place to be, particularly if you want to do it loving Christ and the system wants you to be a success. <laughs> it's a lonely road. I can imagine. Very lonely road. Mm-hmm. It's the body of my Lord that I love. And parts of it show up in buildings sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and being with those who know him and love him in the true sense and want to be like him and worship him. And that's why I go. Mm. Has the church broken my heart? I don't have words for that. I don't have any words for that. Have they raised anger in me? Yes. I have not yet turned over tables cracked whips. I do it verbally. Mm. So do I have anger? Yes. Do I sometimes, you know, I I remember years ago when I was early on in my work with sexual abuse and realizing the fact that it was in the family of God, not just in nuclear families, standing near the front of a church singing a hymn and all of a sudden not being able to sing anymore, realizing, you know, if anybody in this congregation had any idea what was in my head, they would say unclean and want me to leave. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've all had those thoughts. <laughs> so I'm not a victim, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not a victim of abuse, but I do understand that isolation of I'm I'm sitting here worshiping with people who probably mostly have no clue. Now, I happen to have people in churches and things like that that I know and love and they do have a clue because it's different than it was 40 years ago. But it's him that I love and he loves his body. And I will say I have seen some of the ugliest things that I've witnessed in the church. But I tell you, when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit and the love of Mm. God, it is the most beautiful thing we have on this planet. Yes, it's the closest we see of him. It's a taste of heaven. Yes. And when you get a taste of that, it ruins you for everything else. And so I'm with you and believe so passionately in the church. And I'm so grateful, so, so grateful for your work to help the church do a better job. So Dr. Langberg, thank you. Thank you for taking this time and thank you for 
the work you put into this this new book, which, by the way, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, that is going to be a book that we'll be offering the entire month of November for anybody who gives a regular gift of $25 or more to this ministry. We want to get this book in as many hands as we possibly can, but thank you for writing it, and thank you for your work on the behalf of victims. It is God's work on earth, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. Mm. Well, and thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then if you could, just share the podcast on social media just to get the word out about this content and great programs like Dr. Langberg's Today. Again, thanks for joining me. Hope you have a great day and God bless.